Well, welcome everyone for tuning in. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Ben Larson. I'm a research analyst at Arnrich Messina, a Portland-based investment advisory firm bringing our unique and disciplined process to wealthy families, nonprofits, and foundations. We've been working hard over the past year to develop new ways to integrate diversity, equity, and inclusion into our manager research process, ensuring that we are applying our principles and values not only to the investment recommendations that we make to clients, but also to our partners and managers as well. Today, I'm here with Shashila Paris de Costa, a research pioneer and innovator in the world of DE&I investing. As head of advisory at Regnan, she has advised institutional investors and their networks on responsible investment strategy, governance, and stewardship since 2006. Her best practice guides and white papers have been published by PRI, Regnan, and Responsible Investor. And you can read a recent white paper Beyond Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion as an Overlooked Opportunity for Investors on Regnan's website. Shashila is also the director of the US-based nonprofit, The Shareholder Commons, and is the chair of the Responsible Investment Association of Australasia, which is the peak body for all responsible investment in Australia and New Zealand. I hope you can tell that we are very excited to have her here today with us to talk about diversity, equity and inclusion in investing. So Shashila, thank you so much for being here today. I'm so excited. Great. So before we dive into your research and insights on DE&I, can you give us a little bit of background on how you got started working on this type of research and what you find compelling and important about these topics? So we began at Regnan looking into the kinds of things that it seemed like mainstream parts of the financial markets were missing. And in the early days, this was topics like corporate governance, uh, environmental topics, many of the things that today are bread and butter. And the interesting thing about them was that they tended not to have a lot of a research body around them. They tended to be quite hard to put into spreadsheets, so not have a lot of quantitative metrics that were easy for investors to compare. And as a result, companies often were getting the message that they weren't really important to investors. What we know from how companies work and how they grow and perform is that a lot of these things are critical um, for their performance and their, you know, their ongoing futures and therefore critical for investors. Things like how well you're able to attract talent and how much you're able to get out of their contributions when they're on board. Um, things like how well you gel with the community and make sure your brand's protected from some of the reputation risks that attach to, let's call it sharp practices. So a lot of these things are important to investors. And we were involved in the early days in helping to create a conversation that brought that back into the, into the sphere of company attention and to give investors a language to talk about it, to inquire better about it, to compare it, to evaluate companies, and ultimately to secure that better performance in everybody's interests. Mm, that's yeah, that's fascinating. And your recent white paper talks about beyond diversity, and it's titled Beyond Diversity, uh, and it really focuses on the E and the I part of the DEI conversation and equation. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how you distinguish those, and what in particular the about the E and I are critical? If you're happy for me to share a slide, I'd love to do that. That'd, that'd be um, great. So, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, you know, it's often something that's easiest communicated in a cartoon. I don't know if you can see this yet. We can, yeah. Um, I've borrowed from Tony Ruth's cartoons on inequality, equality, equity, and justice. 
and I've adapted them a little bit for what we understand about diversity, equity and inclusion. So what we know is that investors who are talking about DEI are often thinking about diversity. How many women are there? How many members of a particular racial group? Diversity is about bringing different people in and counting them. When we think about equity, we think about fairness. And so it's much more about making sure that the conditions are right for people to come in on their own merits and for them to succeed when they're in the organisations. And so where diversity sort of jumps to the idea that there should be equal representation or some kind of representative number of people in any group of people, whether it's on a board or an executive team or in a workforce, equity goes more to the organisation and talks about what might be missing from the organisation, what might be wrong within the organisation or indeed in a society that needs fixing in order for that natural representation to come through in the numbers, in the diversity numbers. So we think of diversity really as the end of the pipe, what you should count to see if all the other things are working. Now, the thing about equity is that it's really fantastic when you know what the problems are. So when you know the tree's crooked, when you know that the odds are stacked against a particular group of people, for example, there's lots of research that shows that um, you know, certain kinds of names are, are less likely to make it through the pile of CVs um, because they're, they're less like the names of the dominant group in an organisation. Um, and then when you take the names off the CVs, all of a sudden the, there's, there's more equal representation. So that's an example of a, an equity initiative that corrects a structural bias against, in this case, certain kinds of names that denote ethnic backgrounds. The thing about it is that it is really quite hard to correct these things. I mean, anonymizing CVs, which is one of the tiniest examples, seems like a no-brainer, but yet we have a lot of resistance to doing it in organisations. And the other thing is that it's especially hard to correct when you don't know what you don't know. So we can anonymize CVs because we know about this name um, you know, feature where, where certain kinds of names are less likely to make it through the pile, even when the, the, the other elements of the CV are exactly the same, they're equally qualified people. But what it misses is that there are a whole lot of things that we don't even think to think about. And in many cases, we're not entitled to know about other people's lives. So for example, there are instances where things that we see as not particularly problematic for certain groups of people um, are systematically more problematic. An example might be um, the kinds of pressures that a lot of organisations are facing to come back into the office. That has a disproportionate impact who live maybe for people who live further away or whose financial circumstances because of their other, their, their domestic responsibilities are such that the commute is really expensive or housing close to work is really expensive. So there's systematic disadvantages that we don't even know about. And so when we're focused on diversity and things that we can count, we miss out, which is why inclusion is so important. What we actually need is the kind of scaffolding that empowers everybody to contribute and really importantly, allows everybody to contribute ideas about what the barriers are that prevent their own full participation. And that's one of the huge opportunities um, for companies and for investors, because obviously when you have a lot more people at the top of these ladders, you get a lot more apples collected. So that's how we think about diversity, equity, inclusion. Um, the quick way that I sort of mentally label them is fair, safe and open. 
Um, and I have a little bit more of a drill down that we can talk about later about what some of the elements of that, that look like in the equity and inclusion space. Great. And yeah, I love that cartoon. Um, of, it just really compartmentalizes the, the D, E, and I and, and shows a clear picture, at least to me, and I hope it does to, to our audience as well. So many of in our audience uh, are investors who are both interested in aligning their investments with their values, um, but they're also interested in maximizing performance. And so I wanted to take a moment to just show the benefits of uh, diversity and inclusion when it comes to investment. So Shashila, I'll steal the screen back from you, sure. if you don't mind. So as, as we looked at, as Arnold Messina um, through bodies of research, um, when it comes to DE&I, we found that it shows uncategorically that uh, diversity and inclusion have benefits in several different facets to companies that exhibit strong DE&I characteristics. And, and that makes sense, right? Because if you have uh, people and employees who feel them, their full selves are comfortable participating in conversations, that should boost productivity and productivity should boost bottom line. And when we took a look uh, uh, at Wall Street Journal put this study together, and this is just one study. There are many other studies done by other companies showing very similar results. Uh, but the WSJ um, looked at the S&P 500 index. And so they took a look at those 500 companies and they compartmentalized or categorized them into three different buckets. Uh, one being the top 20 diverse and inclusive companies, uh, the second bucket being the middle diverse and inclusive companies, and then uh, the bottom 20 as the last bucket. And what their results showed was that over a five and 10 year period, those top 20 diverse and inclusive companies actually outperformed relative to the other buckets. And uh, you know, while again, this is just one study of research, there are many others that show similar results. And I think that's really profound because it really shows that if you have a uh, diverse and inclusive uh, environment as the company, then, then you're going to boost productivity. Re results and research show that uh, productivity should increase and that, that should uh, flow down to the bottom line. So with that understanding, with the benefits of diversity and inclusion, um, I'm going to stop sharing my, my uh, slides and uh, pass it back over to you, Shashila, and, and ask you, you know, what are some strategies that, and ideas for integrating DE&I principles into a company culture? And what is a good company culture? Yeah. Um, well, let's start with what is a good company culture, because I think that's a really interesting one. We, over the years, we've spoken to, well, probably thousands of company directors and company culture has been really um, at the fore of many of those conversations. And what's really apparent is that there is no one right answer to what is a good company culture. And it's not just that companies differ, it's also that divisions and departments within companies differ. You don't want your risk function to have the same kinds of cultural norms as your you know, sales team. There are, it's appropriate for, for things to be different. And there are things that, that you do wanna be uniform. For instance, you want ethical standards to be applied. You want people to be doing the right thing and observing the company policies. And there's a, there's a range of sort of hygiene factors. But beyond that, there's an ability to vary quite a lot. One of the um, really interesting ideas when you start to think about equity and inclusion instead of only diversity is that a lot of it comes back to people's interactions with the company and its leaders, but also with each other. And so if I might just share another slide. When we looked into the literature, 
about what actually delivers different kinds of performance. So the improvements in productivity or creativity or employee engagement, all things that we know are linked to better corporate performance. What it needed to make that happen was a fair, safe and open company. And parts of that are around culture and parts of that are around the formal structures of the organisation. So fair is equity. They're, they're the structures of the organisation, how the organisation makes decisions and contracts with it, its employees, formal parts of the process, recruitment, um, pay negotiations, all of those kinds of things. SAFE was really interesting. This was a strong cultural um, feature of what's necessary in organisations. And there were two key elements that we found. One is a, a climate that is hospitable to diversity. So that's the kinds of things like what, what is said in, in the leaders' speeches? What kinds of things are celebrated by the organisation? The other part that was really relevant was the psychological safety element. So this is what allows people to feel able to be their full selves at work, to bring everything that they have to the organisation and not feel the need to mask ahead of doing the day's work, because that's a whole different amount of effort that certain groups of people are putting in before they even are at the starting line. And that works as a systematic disadvantage when you're making some people work harder than others because they have to hide who they are or to behave differently to who they are. And we know from the research into employee, um, in, in employee studies that a lot of people feel the need to mask themselves at work. The other part is open. And this again, circles back into a sort of, into the formal structures of the company, which is that the decisions of the organization actually need to include the input from all of their people in order for that diversity to benefit performance because there's no point having the people there with diverse perspectives if you don't bring those perspectives into the decision-making. Um, but again, that requires them to feel safe to, to make those full contributions. So when it comes to culture, and it's, it's a really um, key part of any part of managing a corporate, the ability to make sure that all your people feel able to bring their whole selves to work and to dissent, to provide different perspectives into the decision-making process was absolutely critical. And so we discovered that, you know, quite an important piece at the bottom, inclusive leadership, because of course, that's what makes all of these things happen. That, that's great. I love this visual as well. And I think fair, safe, and open are, are three great words to, um, to really think about. And, and you laid that out so wonderfully. So, so thank you. What, what's getting in the way of companies doing what they should in terms of equity and inclusion? And what should be happening that isn't and why not in your perspective? So we all know about prejudice and we know that prejudice occurs and we, we can't ignore that that happens. And in some cases, that's, that's a, an obstacle. What we're starting to get more familiar with is the idea that a lot of the time bias is unconscious. and one of the things that it requires, because it's unconscious, it's not going to respond to a training program or a stern finger waggle about being prejudiced. It happens without us even being aware of it. And it happens in an aggregate way. It's often not any individual decision that you can point to and say that's biased. You only see the bias when you see that in aggregate, we're only hiring men, for example. Um, 
Um, so those unconscious biases, the only way to address them is to take to try and take subjectivity out of as many processes as you can. And so the example I gave you earlier about anonymizing CVs, um, there are examples where um, there, there are whole companies out there right now supporting organizations to, to do things that take those subjectivity elements as much out of the process as possible. We've been seeing things over the years like auditions for orchestras done behind curtains. And when it turns out that you end up with more, more women when you don't know who it is that's performing. So a lot of these things are inadvertent and we have to, it, it's hard to take subjectivity out of processes because that means giving up some power, you know, to, to apply your own judgment. And that, that occurs in senior ranks, it occurs in middle management when they're making hiring decisions. That is a difficult thing to do. But I think it's also important to recognize that some of the skews that come through are actually just about prioritizing other things. They're biases of convenience. It's convenient to think that you might get along better with this individual you hire because you went to the same sort of a school and you have a similar sort of family structure and, um, and therefore it's easier than thinking about the difference that you might need to manage when you're bringing someone who's quite different into your team. We hear a lot about collegiality on boards, for example. That's about you know, managing the ability of a board to arrive at a decision together. And that's important, um, but there is a trade-off. And so some of the things that get in the way are literally us not prioritizing diversity enough. The reason it's interesting is because we, like your, your statistics showed, and as, as we discovered, performance does come out of the pipe if you do this well. And so what's interesting is thinking about um, the different incentives at work that muddle the incentive to performance at the level of individual decision makers, which is why it's a relevant investor issue for us to be active on. Because we know that companies will perform better. You almost don't even need the statistics to show that companies are going to perform better if they have better access to talent, the full talent pool instead of a, a truncated talent pool, and once they bring people in, they get access to the full talents of the people that they've got. That's sort of a no-brainer. And yet there are these things getting in the way. So what that means is that individuals who are making decisions that add up to the total picture, somehow their incentives are not quite um, aligned to this total performance picture or indeed the social equity considerations that many, many people are very committed to at an individual level. Great. And in and, and your perspective, you engage with specific companies on uh, exactly what we're talking about today. What are maybe a few things, the tangible ways that you recommend um, senior management of companies to, um, to integrate within, um, within their organization to get a pulse of their culture and then to really make sure that their culture is and their environment is, uh, has equity and inclusive practices? Yeah. So the, the conversations that we have with company directors, we really encourage curiosity. So you sort of have to start from the perspective, a bit like the slide I showed earlier, of assuming you don't know what's going on. You don't know what's missing from your organization. You don't know why it is that you don't have enough, you know, people of color coming through to the executive ranks, for example, or whatever the, the particular thing might be. And so starting from that point of curiosity, your first steps should be inquisitive. They should be the employee surveys that try to understand what the experience is like on the ground. 
you want to understand why certain groups of people are not even applying to come and work at your organization. That approach that starts from assuming you don't know what you don't know is much more likely to make sure that you are focusing on the right things instead of the answers you think you need. And that's kind of why we took this deep dive into this research, because we saw a lot of, um, well, a lot of organisations, investors and companies, jumping straight to answers about diversity, very often a quota for women on boards, very often um, particular quotas for hiring, you know, for example, into the gra graduate ranks, and very rarely grappling with the kinds of questions they should be asking about why is this, why is this a problem we need to solve? And that involves a mirror. It involves a certain amount of humility that there might be things going in the, on in the organisation that aren't always perfect and that you know, might need adjusting. It probably needs recognition that the incentive within organisations aren't always lined up with getting the most, the best possible people and the best possible performance out of the people. In a lot of cases, there are groups that don't necessarily feel that they're going to benefit if they have to share power with others. And we need to kind of take a cold, hard look at, at, at that sort of arrangement at those structures and, and recognize where the priorities actually lie. Great. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. The ne you know, the next question that I wanted to ask you is how can investors tell when a company is doing a good job of being equitable and inclusive and what makes those companies and what sets those companies apart from others? Yeah. Um, so it's actually quite hard for investors to tell and investors don't like that because it's not very easy to put into a spreadsheet. We'd love to be able to say, and this is why the focus on diversity has happened. Um, we love to say this company has X number of you know, women on its board, for example, and that company has Y and therefore they're better than. This isn't really how it's gonna work when we're collectively trying to solve a really entrenched problem. So what we like to see is, invest, is companies that where the, there is evidence of grappling with the problem, where they're doing the diagnostics, where leaders are accountable for exactly what it is they have um, identified as a problem. And we're able to see that the initiatives that they've put in place are lined up with solving for that particular problem. And so, for example, if what you're finding is that women are leaving the organisation, you know, in their late 30s after they've had their first couple of children, and you're solving for that with um, quotas for graduate intake, you're probably not causing your initiatives to actually line up with the problem that you've got. And that makes us think that maybe you're not taking the problem seriously. You're not really solving for performance. You might be solving for a stakeholder pressure, for example, around quotas. Um, so when investors are looking to what companies are doing, we really encourage them to look upstream rather than at the numbers coming out of the pipe. So the, the numbers coming out of the end of the pipe are useful and they're useful to companies in figuring out whether what they're doing is working. But we wanna see a really good statement of what the problem is that they're trying to solve. And that should be informed by investigations they've done into their own organization, how the population within their organization compares to the general population that they're drawing from. Um, what kinds of questions they're asking people who already work in the organisation to try and elicit an understanding of what the climate is like on the ground, the extent to which it is a safe place for people to you know, express a dissenting view within a team meeting, all of those kinds of things. 
And there are lots of really interesting tools emerging, as I mentioned before, and companies providing tools for um, encouraging and enabling um, less, more of the subjectivity to be omitted from processes, including decision-making processes within organisations, which you might think is quite hard. Even if you don't end up going with those you know, companies or using those tools, they're a really good idea to have a look at because it gives you whole new ideas about what might be possible within the organisation. Um, so Shashila, do you have any other final thoughts to share on this topic before we close? I think in a lot of cases, we might be underestimating that there is effort required in organisations to actually get to a fair, safe, open um, place. This is not as easy as making a directive that you make the next eight hires, you know, people of colour or whatever it might happen to be. And if we're serious about making this work in a way that is sticky and durable, we're going to need to provide the support to the individuals that need to participate in those decisions, whether it's middle management hiring decisions, whether it's teams who are going to you know, experience an influx of people who look different to them for the very first time in their, in their experience. And that's a good thing. We're actually supporting people to, you know, to have a better workplace experience, to get more out of their participation, their contributions in their teams. But we shouldn't underestimate that some of that is required. It's not enough on its own. We absolutely need the organisational settings to be right. So I'd be very disappointed if anyone went away from this and thought unconscious bias training was the way to get us there. You actually need to change the rules so that subjectivity um, isn't driving the processes anymore. But fair, safe and open will get us there. Um, and it's absolutely necessary. Great. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Well, well, thank you so much, Shashila, uh, for sharing your insights and your knowledge about diversity, equity, and inclusion in investing. Uh, if any of our audience would like to read Shashila's recent white paper, please visit regnan.com. And you can learn more about Arnurich Messina at arnurichmessina.com. Check out our blog post, our blog for more informative podcasts and articles on DEI and other investment topics. Uh, Shashila, we're so glad you could be here, and thank you to our audience for joining. Thanks for having me, Ben. Great. Thank you for listening to Arnurch Messina's podcast. Please see the podcast description for important copyright and disclaimer information.